Fill the Gap, the official podcast series of the CMT Association, hosted by David Lundgren and Tyler Wood. This monthly podcast will bring veteran market analysts and money managers into conversations that will explore the interviewee's investment philosophy, their process, and decision-making tools. By learning more about their key mentors, early influences, and their long careers in financial services, Fill the Gap will highlight lessons our guests have learned over many decades and multiple market cycles. Join us in conversation with the men and women of Wall Street who discovered, engineered, and refined the discipline of technical market analysis. Fill the Gap is brought to you with support from Optima, a professional charting and data analytics platform. Whether you are a professional analyst, portfolio manager, or trader, Optima provides advanced technical and quantitative software to help you discover financial opportunities. Candidates in the CMT program gain free access to these powerful tools during the course of their study. Learn more at Optima.com. Good afternoon, Dave Lundgren. How are you today? I'm excellent, Tyle. How are you doing? Doing well. You know, it's a pretty snowy week here in upstate New York, uh, but nothing compared to the avalanche of uh, short squeezes out on the street. <laughs> <laughs> How about yourself? Uh, big plans for all this snow? Uh, I actually have a ski trip coming up, uh, heading out to Idaho next uh, this coming Friday, actually. Fantastic. Uh, but uh, I, I imagine I'll be logging in every evening trying to check what's going on in the markets. I, I had some crazy moves and I, I wasn't involved in GameStop, but it was just one of those periods in time where you just where you just can't believe the price behavior that's taking place. And I just kept thinking about there's only one way that you can navigate these kinds of environments. And that's that's technically, you know, the knowing when to buy and when to sell and. Uh, you know, we see a lot of commentary on on Twitter and other social media about about uh, holding on to these gains, and mm-hmm. and I, I think one of the points that's lost uh, is is the importance of taking partial profits when you have a windfall gain almost immediately. And mm-hmm. so I, I I didn't own GameStop, but I did own several names that would that were unbeknownst to me had high short interest, or rather un, unbeknownst to me that high short interest would matter so quickly. I knew yes. they had short, short interest, but uh, that it would matter in that moment. And, you know, having stocks go up 50 percent in a, such a short order, not knowing what to do and not having a plan for that is it can be, you know, this this business is all about regret. Uh, no matter what yeah. you do, you're going to regret it. You either yep. you either buy something and it goes up a lot and you regret not buying more <laughs> or you buy something and it goes straight down and you regret buying it at all. Right. So right. This, what I just try to do is try to manage positions to avoid regret and that's you know position sizing properly and taking windfall gains and things like that and because beyond that you can't control anything so this mm-hmm. is what we just uh witnessed this past week in the past couple of weeks is not the first time it's happened in history surely won't be the last mm-hmm. but uh i'm thankful that i have a, a means and a process to navigate it successfully Absolutely, Dave. Well said. Uh, I think there are a lot of perhaps novice investors or uh, first-time self-directed investors that really enjoyed the ride up and uh, perhaps uh, got scorched on the way down. And that's that's part of what the market teaches us. 
uh, I thought it was a fascinating case study in in trend following and what creates trend. Obviously, this uh, this last week we saw things accelerated on a really short time frame. But the gentleman who is uh, at least uh, one of the founders of the Reddit group Wall Street Bets basically created the crowd environment, created that herd mm. behind his idea and, and got to ride the trend all the way up. It'll be interesting to find out if if he was one of the, the first sellers to uh, pick the top and get out. But uh, certainly in terms of the supply and demand relationship, we, we saw those prices go through the roof mm. uh, because there was just limited supply and a ton of demand. For trend followers out there, I'm not sure we're uh, promoting that they uh, talk their book up to, to create the demand <laughs> for their own for their own trends. Yeah, this this episode too uh, was a real delight for me. Uh, I know it was for you as well, Dave, uh, to have Louise Yamada CMT as our uh, second guest on Fill the Gap. For those of you who are new to the podcast, make sure you check out Bob Farrell. Uh, our interview with him was the very first episode of this new series. Uh, incredible evergreen takeaways from uh, from both these veteran analysts. The thing I wanted to talk with you about, Dave, just before we bring on the uh, the guest and introduce our audience to Louise Yamada, um, was her very circuitous path into Wall Street, non-traditional at least, not coming to a job as a securities analyst through uh, traditional means, but the, the way that she found education, how that got her into technical analysis and just an incredible macroeconomist, if, if that's the right term for Louise's work. But you yourself have taught a lot of uh, the next generation about technical analysis. Is that correct? Yeah, I actually spent five years at Brandeis International Business School teaching graduate level class on technical analysis. So it was quite a, a journey for me, um, especially because all of these students come to this class with at least four years of undergrad in, in in securities analysis and finance and some some measure of uh, advanced classes as well in their in their graduate school depending on when they took my class and so they they come into this class with a very strong understanding that the market is efficient and we can all come to work in lab coats and just look at things formulaically and figure out the world based on these formulas we learn in this book and it and it's my uh, it was my great privilege to dispel that notion in the very first class. In fact, in mm -hmm. the first class, I spent very little time at all on specific technical analysis topics. It was more it was more trying to, as we have come to call this podcast, bridge the gap mm -hmm. between um, or, or fill the gap between fundamental analysis and the reality of the way markets actually work. And the only way that you can really truly bridge that gap is with technical analysis, which again, we just had uh, I guess an example of that on steroids in the past couple of weeks, but at the end of the day, that is that is the premise of technical analysis, and it's the opportunity to teach that to graduate level students, who, many of whom were being exposed to it for the very first time, and mm -hmm. then and then to see some students take what they learned. And I had one student go back to China and uh, open a hedge fund. He basically took the foundations of what I taught in the class and turned it into an algorithm and, and began to. I trade on it and turned it into a, a hedge fund and I had to sign papers saying that he took the class from me and and, and things like wow. that. So it was, you know, it's just, you know, I, I, I get messages on LinkedIn from past students talking, you know, telling me or updating me about their current roles on trading desks and how their success there is directly tied to that, the class that, that mm -hmm. I taught at Brandeis. And so it was, uh, didn't make a lot of money, I can tell you that, <laughs> as most professors can probably. Uh, it's a labor you know, of love. Exactly. But, right? but the truth is, the, 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 you couldn't, I mean, the, the greatest reward for 
that experience to me was just working with these young students and being able to impact them in, a, in an important way for the rest of their lives. If they if they plan on being in the investment business, then they they I believe truly believe that they will be better for having gone through my class or any technical analysis class. If indeed they do plan on spending the rest of their career in investing, because it's a critical part of success. And, and as we've talked in the past, most of the best, the truly very best investors uh, that we know of in some form or another, they they consult the chart and they, they want to make sure that they respecting trend and things like that. So there's obvious exceptions to that, but uh, a very large percentage of truly successful investors uh, are, are either t- very technically minded or at minimum have a technical overlay. And, and so mm-hmm. I think students going through a program like that, they can get well grounded in an understanding of how markets really work vis-a-vis technical analysis that just off to a, a great head start. Well said. The uh, the practical application to what they're going to do when they uh, get that first job out of school can't be overstated. I, I can't wait for our listeners to hear Louise's story. It's it's truly inspiring and really born out of a practical need to understand what's happening in the markets. Um, Dave, I understand you did a pretty good job at Brandeis. You won their IBS Excellence in Teaching Award in 2016. Is that right? I did. It was, I, I guess maybe the other professors didn't show up that year, so they had to give it to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think, you know, in, in every semester that you get feedback from the students and one of the, uh, without without exception, the, the, the point of feedback that came across, across in all the semesters was my passion. Mm-hmm. And I think that just came through in that particular year. It was a, it was a great year. Um, I actually think my my final semester was, with the exception of the one that I unfortunately had to give over over Zoom, as given mm-hmm. given the, uh, the the pandemic. But um, my my final years, let's say, they were just better because I just was able to really instill in the students the importance of providing me feedback on the course, mm-hmm. and and really stress the idea that to the extent that the course is getting better over this period of time, it's because of your feedback. So they they really, truly did. Every student gave me feedback and I tried to incorporate every bit of it as the course went on. And so I, although I got the the award for the first semester, I actually think the, the latter semesters were actually the better ones. Yeah. Well, you never get the award for your actual best performance, right? Just, That's true. Just That's look true. at the Oscars. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you bring up an interesting aspect of the CMT Association, Dave, which is that uh, we have launched an academic partner program. I, I'm not going to get all of the history correct, but uh, if you look back more than 30 years ago, uh, University of Richmond uh, started teaching technical analysis mm-hmm. out of that very desire to prepare their students for the practical applications of, of what they're going to do on the job. There was a gentleman there named John Earle who got that class started. And it's been part of the strategic mission for our organization to make sure that technical analysis is taught in the way that we see you know, the most important elements of technical analysis for professional investors. Um, so that academic partner program is available to degree granting accredited universities and colleges around the world. We now have more than 30 uh, who are part of the program, and it's not a commercial endeavor. Uh, there's no uh, no exchange of funds, but uh, we do offer scholarships to the students who are part of those participating universities so they can get a glide path into the CMT program. Uh, I'm not sure about you, Dave, but uh, I ate a lot of beans and rice, kept to a very low budget throughout college. Yeah. Ramen uh, noodles, like, yeah. The ramen noodles, exactly. <laughs> when you wanted to you know, spice it up a little. Right. <laughs> But for the universities that are joining the uh, academic partner program, it it just indicates that their institution is maintaining the highest standards of academic rigor and professional practice. 
but it also signals to the students their their commitment to career readiness and applied learning, uh, which I think is maybe more important than ever for institutions of higher learning as we uh, get through this pandemic. The students are looking to make sure that all of their programs are uh, are most applicable to the career path they're going down. Absolutely. Good to say it better. Tyler, as you know, this is a podcast for the CMT Association and the members. So whenever possible, we want to make sure we give proper updates uh, for what's happening in the association. Anything that you want to provide for this episode? Absolutely, Dave. Uh, Right now, the early registration period for the CMT program for those candidates who are thinking about taking any of the three levels in June this year, uh, that early registration period ends on Monday. February 8th. So if you're listening to this, uh, hightail it over to cmtassociation.org. Make sure you get your registration in early. The other piece I wanted to mention is that uh, the CMT Association supports academic partners around the world. Uh, And as part of that effort, we are going to be at the Game Forum. So for professors, students, faculty who are listening, we hope you are also bringing your student investment managed funds to the Game Forum conference. That's going to take place virtually beginning March 26th this year. So lots, lots happening at the CMT Association. Feel free to reach out to us at admin, A-D-M-I-N at cmtassociation.org with any questions. So with Louise's education, she went on to win the Oscars of Institutional Investing, the II ranked top analyst. 2001 through 2004, she spent 25 years at Smith Barney, which then became Citigroup. And for the last decade, she's been running Louise Yamada Advisors. And it was, uh, I'm sure, bittersweet for her to uh, let her clients know that she's officially retiring at the end of 2020. And so we were able to grab this podcast recording, this interview with Louise to pick her brain a little bit about her phenomenal work in the book Market Magic and many of her uh, institutional clients have been reading for decades all of Louise's work. So Dave, thank you very much for doing this podcast with me uh, or letting me do it with you, I should say. Uh, Hopefully our listeners will really enjoy this episode two with Louise Yamada, CMT. Good afternoon. It is our great privilege to welcome Louise Yamada as our second guest here on Fill the Gap. Thank you so much for joining us today, Louise. Oh, David, it's a pleasure for me. Very much so. Well, with with all that you've accomplished, uh, we could easily talk for a couple of hours and we don't have time for that. So I I can't wait to have you back for the second installment. Wow, we're going to have a second installment? (laughs) I'm just informing you of it now. (laughs) We can fill up the first one pretty well. Oh, I'm no sure good deed goes unpunished, Louise. Exactly. Do one good thing. This creates more. <laughs> Sweet. So, Louise, can you can you take a, a moment to just tell our listeners uh, a bit about your path in, into this business? It's it's more than impressive. It's inspiring. Uh, can you share it with us? Oh, sure. I don't know that it's inspiring, but it's uh, it's an unusual path. Um, I was left with a ten-month-old child. Um, and no money, and I went and got my master's in early childhood education and psychology and started teaching nursery school at Horace Mann on 90th Street and was 
trying to raise some money selling things and I would call my broker and and put them in he'd put me into something and I'd watch it go up and watch it come down at one point I called him and said well how do you know when to sell (laughs) (laughs) and he said he sent me some technical newsletters Granville I think was one of them and I ended up going to the finance institute in the evening for the technical analysis classes and of course Ralph always taught the first class Ralph Ekampora Mm -hmm. and he was a riot and a lot of fun and made it really seemed like a a no-brainer and then the second class the advanced class was always taught in alan shaw's chart room uh, at smith barney and i had the great pleasure of being offered a job uh from alan during that class and uh i worked part-time after i finished with the children until the year was over and then i went full-time with Alan and learned on the job, had no real economic background at all. So it was a real learning on the job. But I think the other thing I say is that a early childhood education held, hold, held me in very good stead on Wall Street. <laughs> it is amazing um, how similar amazing. Wall Street pros are to preschoolers, aren't they, Louise? <laughs> yes, that's true. In many so, psychological ways, that's very true. I resemble um, that remark. So if I could pause you there, that was the New York Institute of Finance, correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh So you commuted all the way downtown. Uh, It was right across the street from the New York Stock Exchange, correct? Right. It was a couple of nights a week. And you said it was uh, it was your broker who introduced you to Joe Granville and some of the other uh, market letter writers of the day. Yeah. What uh-huh. what prompted you to uh, to start the evening classes uh, to learn technical analysis rather than any other discipline for investing? Well, because I had specifically asked, how do you know when to sell? And that is the application that really encompasses technical analysis: when to buy and when to sell. Um, You know, the concept in price, there is knowledge and the trend is your friend. Those uh, very short, simple statements that tell you the benefits that you can reap from technical analysis. Fantastic. Uh, And I found it very exciting. Uh, So it was fun. I learned on the job. We had these wonderful long walls like a gymnasium. And I redesigned them so that the walls overlapped and moved. And we had history, Uh hand-done history, all the way back to 1974 on a daily basis that people had charted. And when I started with Alan, I earned (laughs) it. I was the the plotter. And uh, I did it for 15 years. And I hated to give it up after 15 years because when you're plotting the advances and the declines and the highs and the lows, you really see the relationships. You see the negative divergences developing. You can feel the internals of the market. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that was very exciting. And for our listeners' benefit, what year was it that you uh, started taking these classes? and, And when did you join Alan Shaw's team at Smith Barney? I joined in 1980 part-time and full-time in 1981. That's not a bad time to get involved in uh, in the no. markets. <laughs> it was wonderful. And Alan had his piece in Barron's calling for the bottom in 1982. Uh, it, was, it was very exciting. And part of what was exciting about it is that I was also plotting these huge charts of relative strength. And you could see the consumer goods. 30-year breakout in the consumer goods relative strength. And I remember hollering across the chart room, Alan, we're getting a 30-year breakout. 
and all the consumer stocks were coming to the fore, and it started this incredible rise. And I remember the fundamental analyst for Clorox at the time went out with a buy, and the stock went up five points, and he wanted to pull it. And Alan talked to him and said, don't. He said, we've got targets, you know, 45, 55, 65. Um, and the fundamental analyst couldn't believe it, but we know what the consumer goods did in the 80s. It was phenomenal. And it was, and you, you, um, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about those trends and, and other things that you observed through the 80s and 90s. But I, I just quickly want to just introduce this idea that you had written a book in 1998, and you, uh, very interestingly, you, you called it market magic. So I want to dig into the book because it's not only was it incredibly important when you wrote it, but it, I think it's as relevant today as it was the day you wrote it. So it was just a fantastic book. But before we dig into the book, I, what did you mean by the title Market Magic? What did you mean by that? Oh, I just thought it was fun, to be honest <laughs> with you. I thought it was fun. And the beginning of it really encompasses the research that I did for Smith Barney in 1995. The first piece was a, a big trends report calling for a bottom that we were seeing that the stealth bear market and that the market could could go significantly higher. And nobody paid any attention to it at Smith Barney. So I took a long shot and I sent it to Kate Welling at Barron's and she mm -hmm. called me up and she said, let's publish it. And uh, so she did an interview for me and that sort of, I think, put me on the map. And then the next year I did another one, which was stargazing or crystal ball gazing, something like that. Uh, for Smith Barney, and it was about the concept of old tech and new tech. The first one was showing that we were moving into a global, you know, the globally exposed stocks were the ones that were moving to the fore. And the second report really started to delve into what technology was doing, and that included, you know, how it was increasing the productivity and that there was much further that these stocks could go. And that was 1996, and Kate did another piece on that. Uh, and those were the, the basics uh, went into the book. And then I did additional sections asking questions and brought into it the question of water and, and yeah. as a, something that should have futures on it because we were running out of it. I, did, I got the data from the United Nations on that. It was kind of fun. And then came up with uh, a formulation that I took with me to broker presentation showing the uh, the productivity quotient of technology and that it suggested that these stocks could go significantly higher. Yeah, I, I remember um, I, I remember reading the book in 2000, and it was shortly after I joined the, the technical team at Fidelity. And I, re I remember reading it, and I was fascinating what I did at, the, at that time, but of course, with the benefit of hindsight and having just reread the book again, just in preparation for today's discussion. You're kidding. No, 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 I did. It was, and it was, <laughs> oh I'm, so, I'm so glad that I did because literally Louise, it's, it's, it is sh shocking to me how many uh, critical trends that you identified in that book. And of course, in the, in the research that led up to that book that truly have from all intents and purposes have been all that have mattered to the markets for the subsequent 20 years. So you pretty much oh. hit every trend that mattered and you did it in detail with a, with a deep dive on history and on it. It was basically, it's a, it's an MBA class on, on macro uh, economics. And, but what I loved about it was that it was guided by what you were seeing for the most part, technically in these long-term charts that you've, you know, you've learned to lean on over the years. So, what I'd love to do is just to jump into a couple of the topics, and this isn't really uh, necessarily a, 
a deep dive on, on, on your book specifically, but I want to, I do want to talk about it because as I said, not only was the book important then, but I think some of these trends are just as important today as they were when you wrote the book. And so oh, I think you it are really, impressive. Well, I, I think it would be, our, our listeners would be interested to hear, and certainly I would be interested to hear an, an updated thinking from you on, on, on these trends, because I, again, they, they could be the most important things happening for the next 20 years. So chapter 10, do you remember what the title was? Chapter 10. No, I'm going to go look. It was. What oh, was I'll, it? I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Uh, looking for Here inflation in all the wrong places. So that was That's a throwback right. to the 1960s song, right? That um, is right. That looking, was a Looking for love part. in all the wrong places. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So um, you, when, you, when you were sort of summarizing the book, um, that, that particular chapter, you said that we, we've seen in this chapter how the conventional measuring sticks do not capture the frequently weightless instantaneous, mm-hmm. near infinite, and free of raw materials cost nature of technology's gifts, which was, again, we, we can look back in hindsight and say, well, that was obvious, but back then it wasn't obvious. So that was just a, a truly prescient statement. And so, and again, we can make the argument that that the, these trends still matter. And you, you also, you finished up by saying, perhaps by incorporating the laws of physics, which I'd love to hear you elaborate on, mm-hmm. we can better assess the flow of the economy and understand the anomalies we have seen, such as wage gains, coupled with nearly full employment, absent inflation, which again, both of those statements I could make today, and they're just as relevant today. So you really hit the nail on the head when you when you made that observation. And, and, and I, I noticed uh, that you had responded to uh, Joe Carson on LinkedIn the other day uh, in agreement yeah. with him as he was basically making the same point today. Here we are 20 some odd years later and he's still making the same point. So I just wonder, is it are these trends going to drive, continue to drive markets going forward as they have in the past? And and is it conceivable that they're just as under, misunderstood today as they were back then? Because the Fed doesn't seem to, doesn't seem to be emphasizing it as much in their inflationary commentary. Well, I can, yeah, I think that, yes, I think that these are uh, concepts that will continue, but the reasons underneath them may be a little bit different. I mean, I can be, I can be very skeptical of what goes on in the government. And I think that a lot of why they want to keep inflation reported low has Mm -hmm. to do with not having to acknowledge the inflationary moves that they have to make in social security if they start to see inflationary trends. I think that part of it is changing from the CP, whatever it was, to the CPE, which uh, instead of counting meat because people are eating less of it, they don't have as much money, they count chicken. And if they don't have enough money for chicken, they do beans and rice, which I'll be, although it's healthier for you, would they would prefer not to. And therefore, they come up with a much lesser um, food inflation. On the other hand, anybody who ever ate chocolate Hershey bars knows that Hershey bars became Hershey wafers and now they're thin now they're thick but they're very narrow <laughs> so the content no of everything <laughs> is 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 uh deteriorating and you're paying the same price if not more for it I mean I happen to love the dark chocolate dove things and they changed the packaging not too long ago and I said I know they've done something else here right. so I took out the the number of, of dove candies in the old package and the new package had two fewer two fewer uh, dove 
pieces of candy and the price was the same, but they kept the weight up because they put it in a heavier packaging. It drives oh me goodness. out of my mind. Yeah, <laughs> so but it's happening with anybody who shops and mostly the men don't shop. That may be different now, but you know, a five pound bag of Domino sugar, whether it was 250 or what have you, is now a four pound bag of Domino sugar for 250. And it's 20% inflation. Uh, and, and none of that is getting factored in, and right. not to mention the costs of health care and everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that there is, it has to do with the dollar and the fact that we have so much debt and the value of the dollar is deteriorating. So you need more of them to buy, uh, to buy what you used to buy for less. There's a wonderful, this is one of my favorite statements here. I just brought it to be able to share 1920 a $20 gold piece was worth $20 and could purchase a man's suit a $20 paper bill in 1920 could also purchase that suit today the $20 gold piece is worth nearly 2000 and can purchase a man's suit that same 20 paper bill today can purchase a pair of socks <laughs> oh, boy. I mean that's what's happening on the inflation trend, and it is not being picked up, and I think that it's becoming more and more difficult for people, you know, if you have four people in your family, to feed them, because you have to buy more and more of of what you bought less of before. Well, you'll be happy to know, Louise, we just keep adding more questions to the CMT exams, so inflation Mm -hmm. is not alive in our uh, our line of business. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you can see it on the charts, and if you use uh, shadowstats.com, you'll see that it's running around 6% and not one point whatever they're reporting. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, and the the thing on physics, that I, I'm David, I am so impressed that you reread this. I should have reread it myself um, <laughs> to ha- have a better idea of what you were going to ask. But the, the, the chapter, it's the uh, New Economic Perceptions, Chapter 13, where I really get into the economy of physics, and that wasn't in any of the reports that I wrote for Smith Barney, but it really came to me as as the concepts of of is the intangibles that you mentioned are available. So if you think of um, what is it the law of thermodynamics is what it is. Productivity equals output over input, and and product over cost of purchasing, and then you take the energy equals heat minus work. Um, these are all so it was really fascinating to to pull up this formula so if you if you think energy as productivity, heat as the intangibles, and work as the tangibles, you have the concept that your productivity is going up because the intangibles are getting larger, and the tangibles are getting mm-hmm. smaller. Right. And and then I played with the time factor velocity equals distance over time. So if the velocity distance is the heat minus the work divided by time or the energy divided by time equals the productivity divided by time. So the productivity is rising to such an extent that the time element is much shorter. Right. Exactly. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's just it's That's fascinating yeah. how it all fits together. Tyler, I think we're going to have to put those formulas in the podcast notes. 
for my yes. own benefit. For my own benefit. <laughs> we, so one we of might the, describe a physics textbook for all well, listeners. Well, I was going to say that we should we should put this stuff on CMT level three. That's that's some good stuff right there. Absolutely. Um, so Louise, one of the things that you you were very early on, along with Alan Shaw, highlighted in the early '80s was the was the break in the inflation trend. And you wrote about this in the book about how when you got to the questions part of the book towards the mm -hmm. end. And you mm -hmm. started asking questions about the research you were uncovering. And one of the questions you would ask was, and I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but is it possible mm -hmm. that if interest rates are raised to allay inflation risk, that such a move could boomerang, further hampering the old, what you referred to as the old economy stocks and having no impact on the new economy stocks? And, and that that's pretty much what happened for the next 20 years. Because um, there was a time in the 80s and 90s when interest rates went up, it would cause uh, a problem for uh, the broad market because everybody was still worried about inflation coming back. But mm -hmm. in, when we turned the corner in 2000, when this sort of disinflationary trend turned into deflation, which you you do write about in the book, it was at that point in time when interest rates going up really only started to impact the deeply cyclical parts of the market, and it really was a it was like a nonplus for the for the growthy sort of technology names. Of course, with, with, the, with the implosion of the bubble aside, but that's a separate episode. But for right. the last say 10 or 15 years, interest rates really haven't mattered to the growth part of the economy. And I'm curious, is, there, is this, again, is this something where it's gonna be like this until this particular cycle ends? Or do you see any changes afoot that, uh, that kind of might make for different patterns going forward? Well, I think that the, a great deal of the old economy companies um, have utilized new technology to an extent to make them more productive, I, I would suggest. Um, but the thing that worries me is not so much the inflation aspect of the interest rates, but the fact that I think the U.S., I think the dollar is probably losing its strength globally if we go back and think about um Britain and the pound having been the major uh, reserve currency for so so long until post-war. And then the baton was handed over to the United States as the economic leader and the dollar became the, the reserve currency. I think we're in a process, which is probably a multi-decade process, where we're mm -hmm. seeing that being handed over probably to China and the UN. And the economy there is going to be enormous. I mean, their population is enormous. It's very much what happened here. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see a gold back yuan down the road someplace. Um, we are so indebted and we are so indebted in terms of what we've spent in these, I would say, ridiculous wars in the Middle East and what we're doing now for the pandemic. Not that everybody isn't doing it. Europe is doing it, too. But the question is, will we be able to get out of it? We know that China and Russia are buying less and less of our bonds. As a matter of fact, China's actively decreasing their purchases of our bonds, which means the there will be excess supply. How much of that do we print money so the Fed can buy them back? I mean, at some point, interest rates are probably going to go up on their own basis of having too much supply mm. uh, of the bonds themselves. And I don't know how we avoid that. I don't know to what extent it leads to hyperinflation down the road. I'm not seeing that immediately, but I suspect that we're looking at something like that unless we have, I mean, I think Yellen was a good appointee and I think that together, well, should be able to try and compensate for that. Let the bonds come due. Let 
whatever it is that they do to unwind a lot of the debt that we have. Otherwise, what do we do? End up like Japan? We'll we'll, uh, we'll see what what, uh, what what the future does hold. But if you know, I, I think of uh, John Roke over at Wolf Research. He, he coined the phrase. I think it's Brogdignagy and bases, which is just yeah. this gigantic base. If you look at the, uh, it will, again, we'll, we'll provide a copy of this down in the, the episode notes, but the Shanghai composite is coming out of a, looks like a 13 or 14 year base. That could be pretty telling. And, you know, Louise, you've proven to be a pretty good forecaster. So we'll definitely be, <laughs> be paying attention here going forward. Do, do you see a role for, you know, in, in this sort of transition in, in currency dominance? Do you see, or how do you see Bitcoin fitting in or is, where, or is that just a sideshow? Bitcoin is something that I have such a hard time trying to get my hands around. It's something that it's not as tangible to me as everything else. I'm just looking, I'm taking a side show here and looking at the Shanghai after you mentioned it, or actually, and you have, well, you have from 1915, a flat base that's just yeah. lifting out through that. Right. But if you took the draw up in 1914-15 as the middle of something, you could call it an extended double bottom that goes all the way back to the, uh, let's see, where, 2009, 2008. Right. Um, so that's an enormous potential. You know, I'd be inclined to agree with that. Mm. Louise, you wrote in 2005 about a less Americentric world, obviously seeing the uh, outperformance of emerging markets going into what became the global financial crisis. Do you see these last 10 years as, uh, you know, a mere consolidation? And we're going to see that trend continue from here? I think that there's a good chance, although the developed markets have outperformed until just recently, just mm -hmm. broken the long-term downtrend on the ratio between developed and um, emerging and developed markets, mm -hmm. the emerging ahead, markets. And I think China is a heavy weight in that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, so Chinese China, I think, is going to play a huge, a huge part in, uh, in the future. I think one of my favorite phrases from the Smith Barney team, and you can you can set the record straight whether this was yours or Alan's or Ralph's, but the phrase that the bigger the base, the higher in space uh, mm -hmm. in terms of high, and the big, high, the bigger the top, the bigger the drop, and the bigger the drop, the longer the need for repair. Mm -hmm. um, it's Alan and and Ralph. Which one started it? I'm not sure, but it was definitely their phrase. Perfect. I love the question because it actually dovetails in with another one of the themes that I thought was just really in incredible that uh, that was highlighted in, in the book. And Louise, you talked about um, how developing nations were completely bypassing old tech just because they were they were sort of coming into the, the, the tech boom with no technology base to begin with. So they, they just began uh, moving right into the new tech as, as the economy was exactly. unfolding at that time. So is it, you know, Tyler was, was asking, is it is it possible that, that, that the EM has sort of just taking a breather over the past 10 years, but is it is it feasible that they come back into play again? And we're talking about China here, uh, mm -hmm. breaking out of this base. And is it is it is there something to that where these Absolutely. these uh, emerging I markets mean, have they've already sure. they've already like adopted all this new technology? They just completely went right past the Absolutely. old. Absolutely, the ones that are starting, you know, with with the uh, advantage of having access to the new technology, don't have to have all the old telephone lines or buried anything. That's all. You know, exactly. aerial. I remember going in 1992. I went to um, 
with the Financial Women's Association. I went to Argentina and I was so stunned to see everybody with, they weren't cell phones, but they were the handheld phones where they communicated with one another. And it was was stunning. I mean, they were already uh, getting involved in the new technology. That hasn't really helped them a whole lot, but (laughs) perhaps been a bit mismanaged. But yes, and I think that that's one of the the discouraging aspects of it. Look at the China with the new railroads, et cetera, and we're still struggling to get anything going that will connect our cities. And it's all old tech, and it's difficult and very expensive to make those changes. Mm-hmm. Whereas, had we been able to start the way they're starting, it gives them an advantage. Of course, forget the fact that China stole all the technology from us so they could do it even faster. Right. Well, let's split hairs, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Louise, you, you asked just a moment ago about whether we become the next Japan, which leads us to our question about demographics and that mm-hmm. aging population as not being a tailwind to the growth, uh, but in a lot of emerging markets, we're seeing these population booms. How Mm -hmm. would you compare the millennials to the baby boomers in terms of their likely impact on markets? Well, the demographics plays a big part in the stock market. I mean, we've seen, and and I think it was Harry Dent that I used as an example in the book where each population, each generation has had the equity market go up according to how many people there were in that that, uh, population group. And the baby boomers were the first and largest that we'd had of 77 million. And it looked as though we weren't going to have anything bigger coming along. So there could have been a big dip between us and the next generation. But, you know, we have now, having been born, a population that's even larger than the baby boomers. So I think that alone could argue that our market go higher, forget the depreciation in the dollar, which I think will also serve to push it higher without interest rates. There are no other assets really that you can throw your money at. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a large population and this 33 billion or so that's come in this last year in terms of new accounts on the part of perhaps young people is perhaps the starting point at which they become interested in putting money in the market. Unfortunately, a lot of it is speculative, and we've seen some of that from mm-hmm. these web, you know, from their talk websites or whatever it is that they use, Reddit and all that, um, mm-hmm. where they're on top of it all. But I think that we have a good chance of having um, a continuation of a good stock market based on purely just demographics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we have an older side, population, right? but we have a large upcoming younger population also. Right. And we know the millennials are, are just now coming into their family formation phase, uh, impacts on real estate and uh, you mm-hmm. know, expanding their own families. What sectors should we be looking at going forward if we wanted to capture the impact of millennial spending patterns? And feel free if you want to mention you know, favorite stock specifics uh, or ideas you might have just on where we should look for those trends. That's a very good question. And we do an awful lot of relative strength work on a monthly basis. And it has held us in good stead in terms of identifying the tremendous relative strength top that was taking place in 2007 and the breakdown in financials. 
mm-hmm. which allowed us mm-hmm. to get our clients out of the financial. Same thing for energy in 2014, a large top in the relative strength progression, which suggested to us that that too was entering a structural bear market. What's very interesting to me is that we haven't gotten a real sense of which sectors might be forming enormous bases. I mean, clearly we think technology is going to be a part of it. Um, But I think I'm just trying to pull up some of the, uh, I mean, you still see technology as being a leader here. Industrials is a lot less impressive in terms of the relative. As a matter of fact, it's made another downturn in a uh, already five-year decline. I think there may be something developing in healthcare where it has been in a flat pattern since 2016, has not yet broken that support level. So you have like a sideways action taking place, something to be watched. Uh, Financial has underperformed since 2009, and there's nothing very exciting about that pattern even today. The same thing can be said for energy. Um, Consumer staples has been disappointing. It had a nice consolidation, but it's gone to new lows. Consumer discretionary, of course, now that you've got Tesla in there, I don't know what to make of it, but that's been in an uptrend. So it's not as though it's a new base, but it looks like obviously a continuation of an uptrend that started back in 2009. Telecommunication services, of course, was did not have all the technology names in it, but now has broken out of an absolute price uh, base that goes back to about 2007. And now we need to wait for some kind of turn in the in the relative strength. So maybe healthcare uh, is what's showing up as a potential for a new relative base that would give us a sense that there's something coming there, but I'd like to see the breakout. So it's hey, not hey, Louis, quite as ask, clear. Uh, yeah. Can it's I ask not a, quite as clear as the tops. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so so in, in our first episode with Bob Farrell, he made a comment that, um, that you, you don't typically see leadership transitions during a bull market. You see them after, which would imply pretty much everything you just said, which is that energy, financials, industrials, they, they don't hold any hopes for holding on to sustained leadership until this bull market is over. Is that is that something you agree with it or would you would you have well, any evidence I think to the contrary? That one of the things that well I don't see anything about uh, even stabilization in energy. It's 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 still in a downtrend that it's been in since it broke down in 2014. That's the relative downtrend. Mm-hmm. Um, prices trying to stabilize, and you have at the, at the very least the potential for a rally and maybe some basing, but nothing that's going to give us six years yet that suggests it's coming back. Um, I think if you put a lot of the solar names in with, or some of the alternate energy in with the energy sector, which S&P is always late in doing this, they do the most ridiculous changes in their sector behavior. But obviously it's in the new technology that we're going to see technology taking over again. As you said earlier, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's the part that's going up. I mean, maybe it still doesn't have the earnings that you'd like to see, but it is a beginning. It is new technology, and it is something that should be incorporated in the energy sector, at which point maybe we begin to see a basing process. But until then, we have to 
look at them as a separate entity. So have I lost track of what you said? No. So no, no, the, no, that's, at, that's at the moment, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't see what I'd like to see in terms of when we saw the 30-year base breaking out in the relative strength right. of the consumer goods right. back in 1981. Right. Um, 82. There's right. nothing that dramatic. There's the potential for healthcare, and then we'll see what happens with some of these other sectors. So is this, is this just more suffering for value managers until the bull market's over? Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, yeah, I would say, I would say yes, and I, I take, I take exception to the concept of value from a technical analysis perspective. Have a value watch list. And wait until those stocks start to give you some kind of technical evidence that they're coming to the fore, that they're maybe transferring into growth, because value is nothing more than the non-growth stocks, basically, that have either suffered bear markets and need to repair or simply don't have the earnings or the interest yet, but as and if they start to develop bases and break out, that's when the value manager should go after them, not sitting on them for the four years while they repair. Right. So that's my thing about value. Value to me is is growth that is no longer. Right. I, I think well, that's one of the one of the one one of the ways where a traditional fundamental manager can really leverage technical analysis in, in the sense that they can they can find value stocks just like anybody can find value stocks, but they can lean on trend to help them identify when the market cares about that value and, and, and frankly, um, identify when the market has estimated that growth is in the fore to unlock that value opportunity, right? Because that's exactly. what a value trap is all about. It's just cheap, but it continues to stay cheap, if not get cheaper, because there's just nothing to unlock the value. The growth hasn't come to the right. fore yet. Right. That's right. And then those value stocks become growth and the old leaders become the value. Yeah. But I think that technology is going to continue to be a leader. Uh, We're in a long-term trend here that that unless you don't have new, you know, discoveries, it's going to propel what happens going forward. So you need to see new energy in the energy sector. And let's call S&P and call Bob (laughs) Bob Stovall and tell him him to get get started. Yeah. So, Louise, I I was listening to a CMT Association webcast presentation uh, from January 27th with a very smart analyst out of the Philippines uh, who was explaining some of the names in the technology sector that that might not be well understood. Uh, Her contention was that uh, some of the esports, the gaming, uh, that is really not part of my world. I I don't understand uh, why somebody would pay hard currency for an avatar or some you know electronic skin on their character in a game but her contention was that they've diversified from what was just a game to online dating sites really core to people's identities particularly if you start to think about the millennial generation not just of developed markets but throughout southeast asia and elsewhere mm-hmm. Do you find uh, from you know the quality of leadership that uh, it really depends a lot on the the diversified application for those industries and and that they are leveraging that technology in new ways? And that's a question I don't really feel qualified to answer. I am not familiar with a lot of the gaming stocks. I don't know to what extent they're moving into. I'm sorry I didn't hear that. I saw it coming up. Um, 
I don't. I'm I thinking, can't really answer that. Of of course, I'm out of my depth. She's probably well. right. She's probably <laughs> right. What names did she give you? <laughs> she she was talking about uh, a, a number of names that I had not actually even heard of before. But uh, within the Chinese tech sector, uh, I think what one of the things that we're seeing lead the uh, the Shanghai Composite are these platforms and and uh, online gaming networks. Uh, she mentioned a number, including Roku, that's familiar to everybody. But right. I think as, a, as an analogy to uh, sector groups or, or individual companies that have really led, it seems to be that you know Apple's technology now has application in every aspect of our life and that that mm-hmm. uh, sort of gets the flywheel moving. Have you thought about healthcare? About Tencent? Tencent, yeah, Tencent, one of them? For Tencent, sure. one of them, yeah. And mm-hmm. probably Baba and, and JD and what have you. Absolutely. Um, interesting. Yeah. Well, one can look at what has done well here and find the equivalents over there and start mm-hmm. to invest in them. I think a lot of companies are already doing a lot of investing in China. Mm-hmm. Louise, maybe we can transition a little bit. I think we're, we don't want to keep you uh, too too uh, late here, but um, so your your company, uh, Louise Yamato Advisors, um, mm-hmm. if I'm correct, you've retired from your regular publishing schedule and you've kind of turned the daily chores over to Jonathan Lin. Is that correct? Yes, he was interested in trying to keep it going. And um, I would say 99% of the clients went with him. And that's very nice for him. And I will... I contributed to the initial piece. I have a piece of stock ideas for him for the um, coming up piece that will publish this week. And it frees me up from the deadlines, but I have the ability to write something as I see something that might be pertinent and include it for well, him. Well, Jonathan's been with you for a long time. Years. Yeah, 40 <laughs> years. So he's... he's a- <laughs> He's obviously, it goes uh, all the way back to Smith Barney. He and yeah. Lori Altenberger too. Yeah, and right, they've right. been together Lori, yeah. all these years. Yeah, so he's obviously uh, got quite a bit of experience himself, but he's also learned uh, learned at your side. So I'm sure he's more than qualified to take the helm. He has a CMT charter as well. Um, exactly. Mm-hmm. So what what yes, about yourself? More what, than what, qualified. Uh, what well, does I your think I, I I seem to like to keep my hands in it. I mean, I'm looking at the market every day. Uh, It's kind of fun. I'd like to try and play it myself. I didn't do a lot of it at Smith Barney because you couldn't trade and I haven't done a lot of it while I've been writing because I didn't seem, it it seemed like I shouldn't. And uh, hopefully now it might be fun, especially especially following what you're going to be doing. (laughs) (laughs) Dave, would you like to comment on that for our listeners today? Uh, I don't know. I, well, I, I, I'm, I guess you'd call it a private investor today. I, I left yeah, in fine. December and yep. uh, I'm, I'm trying, I'm doing my best, truly doing my best to decompress and just try to relax after that's great. 20 years of managing other people's money. And, and, and I, I honestly have to tell you, I've, I've never been so busy. Isn't that <laughs> I, funny how that happens? I know I feel the same way. I feel exactly the same yeah. way. But there's something in the blood. There's something in the blood about the challenge. Yeah. It's like golf. I hope I can play golf forever. And I'm sure I'll be interested in the markets forever. And and, uh, as as I've said in the past, I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years and I I don't feel like I've worked a day in my life. So it's it's really... it's a, it's a oh, great business, important. great industry. Yeah. So mm-hmm. plus I get to meet people like you, Louise. So. Oh, uh, aren't you sweet? And the same, <laughs> and Tyler, same in reverse. Definitely. Yeah. 
So, um, um, Louise, you, you have uh, this unmatched curiosity. You've always had this appetite to learn more. So I'm, I'm curious, what uh, what are you reading for books these days? Anything anything got your attention? Uh, I can't say anything market related, as I mentioned before. That's I'm fine. trying to I'm trying to learn market smith. I'm trying to learn some of these other um, charting offerings so that when I don't have Bloomberg anymore, I can move mm. on to something else and and keep up the same interest. That sort of has occupied me along with transferring the business over to Jonathan. That's been a big a big part of what's been happening this past month. So there hasn't right. been a lot of extra time. So I hope to get some pleasure reading done at some point. If you're open to it, maybe we can take either a current or recent one of your notes from Jonathan and, and we'll put it in the podcast notes for our, for our listeners. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. that would be Fantastic. great. Maybe this week. All right. Well, Louise, I, I, I think I have 30 more questions for you and we're out of time. <laughs> okay. I'm happy, so, to, happy to go over them again. There's yeah, so much I'll, that we can talk about just from a technical perspective, all the yeah. uh, adages, you know, all exactly, advances yeah. aren't equal, all declines are not equal, all that sort of bottom fishing can be dangerous here. Well, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. If, if it's all right, Dave, I would, uh, I'd love to conclude with, with one last question. Please. Yeah. So in 2016, Louise, we had the unique privilege and uh, honor of recognizing you as the CMT Association's annual award winner. You've got accolades throughout the industry, including the, uh, the II's top-ranked analysts 2001 through 2004 and, and many others. But for me, the, the thing that uh, really compels this work and working with Dave and, and others like you is, is just the camaraderie that comes from membership in the CMT Association. And I know in, in our previous calls, we talked a little bit about the team at Smith Barney. Uh, but I was wondering if you could share with folks just, uh, you know, the the lifelong uh, relationships that you develop just with colleagues and, and friends and clients, either within the CMT Association or outside as well. Well, I think 2016 came as a shock to me. I mean, it was delightful. I mean, Gail Dudek was darling to propose me for a Lifetime Achievement Award, and I was really overcome, I must say. Um, I think a lot of the clients, like David and, and Frank before him, have become friends. I mean, we don't actively do things together, but free to talk. And I think I have had a tendency to be a bit shy and withdrawn, so I may not have done as much active participation, although I did do several years of grading the CMT work with Bernadette Murphy years back. <laughs> And uh, strict grader, I must say, but um, <laughs> uh, it was—it's was, a cute little anecdote because uh, John Murphy and I would grade with Bernadette, and John was a very easy grader, and I was a very strict grader. And Bernadette told me years later that she always had to go home and bring his grades up and my grades down <laughs> to, to get a to get an. <laughs> a proper a proper perspective on the poor kids <laughs> papers <laughs> that is brilliant now did, <laughs> were you uh, close with bernadette when she brought her niece into the business not that no, far back no um it was actually more or less when she got involved with the cmt grading and and pulled me into that so i did that with for several years with her but i knew um marianne marianne Bartels. yeah 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 mm -hmm. Just yeah. getting started at uh, Merrill Lynch. Wonderful. Merrill Lynch. She's wonderful. Yeah, she is. Yeah. 
Well, now we know our next guest for the show, right, Dave? There we go. Yeah. Yeah, she'd be good. <laughs> <terrific. laughs> yeah. Oh, Louise, thank you so much for uh, for well, joining us thank today. Thank you for... both. You're just darling, and I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the. It's been fun. I I still can't. I'm I'm bowled over that David reread the book. Oh my gosh! I I'll go reread it, it I'll, myself. I'll reread it again. It's fantastic. Oh, it's you're so very well. kind. Thank yeah. you so, will so much. So all of our listeners. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Louise. Thank you. All right. My pleasure. Have Thanks a great so weekend. Bye bye. Bye bye. Fill the gap is brought to you with support from Optima. In addition to candidate study of the official CMT curriculum, Optima provides a full video course on all of the material that candidates need to know for each level of the CMT exams. Each course is broken up into modules ranging from 15 to 45 minutes, depending on the complexity and length of the topics being covered. Learn more at Optima.com. Hey, Dave, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the resources that go along with this podcast? Absolutely. So when when we host a a guest, uh, of course, many things will come up throughout the conversation, be it charts, a book that they've read or a perhaps a book they've written, some of their research, what have you. And so just want to make sure that our listeners know that at the end of each podcast or at the end of each episode, there will be links to the various resources. So for this particular podcast, we'll have a, a link to uh, Louise Yamada's last research note, as well as a link to her book, Market Magic, which is just a fantastic book. It's it's a central focus to this discussion that we have with Louise. And it's a must read book, I think, for anybody who's serious about market history and about tying technical analysis together with macro trends. Brilliant. And for those of you with feedback to fill the gap podcast, there are speakers that you want to have us interview suggested topics and themes that we need to be covering. Please send your feedback to podcast at cmtassociation.org. You'll find all those resource links available at cmtassociation.org under the fill the gap podcast. (laughs) 